everyone, Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 69. Today I'm speaking with Ted Harrington, the author of the new book, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right, and also executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, a company comprised of ethical hackers who have helped companies such as Google, Amazon, Netflix, and more fix thousands of security vulnerabilities. We discuss how both startups and established companies should think about and implement security, common security misconceptions, and what Ted is concerned about regarding the upcoming 2020 election security. Enjoy. Also, if you haven't yet, be sure to check out the brand new relaunched besttechie.com. We have a ton, a ton of great new content up there as well as much more on the way. I'm here with Ted Harrington. He's uh, the author of a book called Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. He's also the executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, which is actually a company uh, comprised of ethical hackers, famous for hacking cars, medical devices, all kinds of really neat stuff um, that you probably, if, if on, you wouldn't want hacked you know, on your own end. Um, but they, the company and he have worked for uh, working with companies like Google and Amazon, Microsoft, Netflix, you name it. Uh, the who's who, if you will. So, Ted, I'm really excited to have you on uh, this episode of uh, the podcast. And we're going to be talking a lot about security today. Something, a topic we haven't really talked too much about, but I'm super, super thrilled. Um, I think actually because the last person, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, uh, Teresa Payton, Ted, but she was on the podcast uh, a while back, and she was the first T CIO at the White House under the Bush administration. And um, she had some really cool stories. But yeah, so I'll, anyway, Ted, I'll let you do some talking. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hey, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I do know Teresa pretty well. Uh, obviously, we swim in the same circles. And uh, <laughs> she's she's a total badass. So she's a great, great guest for you guys. So I'm glad that you got some of her insights. Definitely. So I'm going to start us off. Uh, normally, I like to talk about who you are and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Kind of give our audience a feel for what your day-to-day is like, uh, a little of your background, you know, in terms of who you are and how you got to where you are. Yeah, sure. Um, so as you were mentioning, you know, I'm, I'm an author and a leader of ethical hackers. And basically what that means, like what do I do with every day, is I'm constantly trying to solve this problem. The problem that I'm trying to solve for our customers is how can they build better, more secure software and then prove it to their customers or their investors or whoever the stakeholders are that care about whether or not this solution is secure. And that's a that's a complex challenge that has many pieces to it, but essentially who we are, you know, <clears throat> the way to think about us we're the good guy hackers, right? We're constantly looking at systems, try to break them, using the same methods and tactics and strategies that the attackers do. And I think a, a really illustrative story of kind of how that manifests is our origin story. Actually, this goes, this goes back many years, all the way back to 2005, when we were doing this research on what's called the immobilizer system that is, it's part of the ignition sequence in cars. And the whole premise is that you're supposed to have the authentic key to be able to start the car, right? You, that's why the keys have, they're kind of bulky. There's not just a mechanical piece. There's some mechanic, uh, some electronics around it because there's a mm -hmm. chip in there that communicates with the onboard computer to say, is this the authentic key? If it is, the car will, the, uh, the computer will allow the engine to start. And if it's not, it will disable or immobilize the vehicle. And the system was at the time considered to be, and I'm putting this in air quotes right now, unhackable, right? It couldn't be defeated. <laughs> and <laughs> the problem with a phrase like that is that it makes people like us say, challenge accepted. <laughs> and so uh, we went out, we, uh, we built a weaponized software radio, we reverse engineered the cryptographic algorithm, and we essentially found a way that we could start a Ford Escape without the, auth without the authentic key at all. We started it literally with just this weaponized software radio. And the reason I'm telling that story is because it really demonstrates, I think, what our 
practical day-to-day existence looks like. We look at systems, we say, how could a person with a malicious mindset exploit both the technical implementation of this system as well as the assumptions, the sort of mistaken notions that went into building it? And we try to find those issues so that we can help companies get better before the attacker can exploit those issues. Gotcha. So I mean, so that that's fascinating to me. I, I one I have I have questions. <laughs> I have questions about this Ford Escape. So when did you? I okay. So when you were looking into figuring out how to kind of circumvent or get around um, uh, the, uh, the the secure key, um, what was Ford? Was the Ford Escape just happened to be that maybe that was your car, your friend's car, or whatever? Um, that you were, or, or, or how did you, how did you wind up figuring out it works on the Ford Escape? I guess that's my first question. Sure. Yeah. So the process, so this was a piece of security research. So, uh, the distinction that I'm drawing is that Ford themselves, they, they weren't hiring us to do this. We were doing this as research and really the distinction there, there are a few elements that are important that uh, I can go into depth later if you want to, but really the difference is just that we're operating really without any information, right? If, if they were our client, they would explain to us how the system worked and that would make us more efficient and faster and stuff like that, but we didn't have any of that access because we weren't working for them. Um, and how we arrived at Ford was there's a layer to the onion we have to peel back, which is that the actual system that powers this immobilizer uh, wasn't just used by Ford. It was used across most automotive manufacturers. It's sort of a, it's a third-party platform that then, of course, the automotive manufacturers pay for and deploy it. And when we started looking at the, the breadth of deployment of these units, like how many cars have this, this particular system, worldwide it was many, 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 many millions of units. And so the scope was significant. And so that wow. really focused us on wanting to look at something that had that much impact on that many lives all across the planet. And then from there, it was just a matter of narrowing in, okay, of the automotive manufacturers who use this system that is claiming to be unbreakable, um, which of those can we get our hands on? And you know, at the time, it was a bunch of students, you know, literally in the mm-hmm. PhD program at Johns Hopkins University, who are doing this, and so it wasn't like we had budget to go out and buy a vehicle. So we just we just used a car that we already had access to, that that also met the criteria of it was using this particular system. And then from there, it was just a matter of uh, the scientific method, right, of establishing the hypothesis and then testing against the hypothesis in order to arrive at at an outcome and prove one way or the other. Now, how a pro- uh, how long did it take you from start? to when you were able to then start the car without the key. Give give our audience an idea of like how much research went into it. Um, Was it relatively easier than you thought it would be? Was it harder? Uh, I'm just curious. Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Um, It was way easier than it should have been. Now, that's not to say that it was (laughs) – completely trivial. I don't think anybody uh-huh. necessarily could have done it. It did require a certain level of skill and expertise to be able to do this. Um, but the total timeline on the project was measured really in weeks. And uh, there were essentially a few elements to the system that were quite trivial to defeat. And there's one that there's a really interesting element to this story that I that I love to sort of poke fun at but that my business partner, Steve, who was really leading the project, he refers to this as his favorite five minutes of silence in his life. And that was when we had discovered the issue, we had written up what the problem was, we, written, we wrote up a recommendation on how to fix it, we took a video of us actually starting the car without the key, demonstrating that how this worked, and we sent all this off to Ford, and they got on a phone call with us to to talk through it. And what was interesting was they they really were not quite receptive to the research. Now things have certainly changed over the last 15 years. But 15 years ago, people people today still aren't really receptive to security research. But 15 years ago, it was very much not something that was welcomed by companies. And so their default position was to dispute the findings rather than to say, okay, help us get better. 
And what was really interesting was as we're talking through the whole attack sequence, they kept coming back to this thing. They kept saying, you know, there's more to it than that. What you're describing, there's a key mechanism we have in place that really prevents this type of issue, so we're not too worried about it. And we're a little stumped because we're saying, you know, we showed you the whole write-up. We literally showed you a demonstration on video of it happening. Like, we didn't Photoshop that. It actually happened. And during that conversation, we paused for a second. We said, wait. You're not talking about this, and we started asking about this really trivial uh, error-correcting piece of code that was super, super small. It took us literally minutes to break this part of the sequence. It was mm -hmm. so insignificant that we didn't really talk about it very much. I mean, it was in the report, but it was like one sentence. <laughs> yeah. They go, once we, we said, are you not talking about this, are you? And they put the phone on mute. Steve's favorite five minutes of silence followed <laughs> as they were clearly talking amongst themselves saying, oh, wow, these guys did actually beat the system. And then they came back on and they said, all right, we're going we're gonna to fly some people out uh, tomorrow to work with you to try to resolve this. And so, I mean, that's just an example wow. of how a lot of companies that's really crazy. think, right? They sort yeah. of reject. And so it's a problem. Is that, like, is that a, I mean, I guess it was more common 15 years ago, even even maybe 10, 10, you know, 10 less than five years ago. Um, but today, our company, do you find that you're working on this stuff? Do you find companies more receptive to this kind of research or is it still kind of frowned upon or taboo in, 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 in that setting? It's there's remarkable progress has been made in the last 15 years. I mean, one of the things that was kind of crazy looking back all those years ago was that, you know, of the few people who were doing security research at that time, most of them just got sued. Like we're taking right? on were they, great yeah. legal risk by doing this. And fortunately, we weren't sued. And actually, a lot of good things came out of it. You know, we published that research. A lot of uh, news outlets wrote stories about it, and as a result, you know, companies came calling saying, hey, you know how to find issues and fix them. Can you help us? And so it was really positive for us. That really launched our company that has succeeded over all these years. But when you think about the way companies are today, they're much more receptive. Definitely the progressive organizations um, are much more receptive to the help that security researchers can provide. But it's still not where it needs to be. There's still, even though it's not quite as adversarial anymore, a lot of companies still um, don't really like <laughs> receiving security research results. And but one of the things that they've been that's been happening that's a good thing in spirit, but is not good in execution, is the introduction of these ideas that are called bug bounty programs. In bug bounty programs, mm -hmm. the concept is basically uh, a company says, "I've got a." Here's a piece of technology, and if a security researcher finds a certain type of issue, I'll pay you a bounty. I'll pay you 200 bucks, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, 2,000 bucks, something like that. And um, that's awesome in spirit. I mean, conceptually, I absolutely, 100%, without caveat, support that idea. The problem is, though, the way most of them execute are executed actually are disincentivizing to researchers because um, – Findings are commonly refused payment uh, by participating as a researcher. You're not allowed to talk about it. And so mm. if you aren't paid and you're not allowed to publish the research, you just invested all this time and effort to get literally nothing. Nope. Yeah, and nope. that's that spooks a lot of researchers who are like, I don't want to spend my time to have that outcome. So once we resolve that, I think the world of relationships between companies and researchers will be amazing. But we got a long way to go to get to there. Yeah. Real quick, before we get to the next question, I want to ask you: like, how 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 do you or any security researcher that you that you work with or know, how, how do you guys pick what what targets to to try and go after? Oh man, there's that is that is such a good question, and there's so many layers to it. Uh, but I'll, I'll I won't answer all the layers just in the interest okay. of time. <laughs> but really, the first place that it starts from is what's somebody interested in, right? I mean, you can't. Because research is, even for a, a, a company like ours where we are paying 
our analysts, you know, we're paying their salaries and everything for them to do research. Nevertheless, they still have to be interested in it, right? And um, so a lot of times we defer to our researchers or our analysts to say, hey, why don't you pose an idea that you're interested in? And there's always more ideas that they're interested in than we have time for. And then from there, what's really important, and this is where I think some organizations are really good at this, some organizations are not good at this at all, and then most people probably fall in between, is then filtering that into actual real-world impact, right? So a researcher might be interested in a, a particular type of finding, but then we have to say, okay, why does this matter to company A, B, or C? Uh, why does this matter to the general public? Why does this matter to an industry? Um, answering those types of questions, because once we can make those two things fit, it, it's something the researcher is interested in, and it's something that would deliver impact and value to somebody, a company or an industry, then those are, we know we've got a green light and we should go for it. Nice. So uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, some of the companies you've worked with are some of the biggest companies in the world, if not the biggest. Um, and I'm curious, what kind of security vulnerabilities are they facing on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, is it something that, that, that the average person can really wrap their head around? Like, like, or is it like an immense scale of, you know, uh, countries, people trying to, you know, hack, hack into these companies and get either classified information or data or whatever the case may be? So the, uh, the short answer to that question is that the issues that the largest technology companies in the world face from a, you know, from a security perspective, their issues are really the same as the startup who doesn't even have funding yet. Now, the, how those manifest, and there's lots of nuances, you know, those are obviously very different, but in terms of the process that an organization has to go through, right, thinking about what do you wanna protect, who do you need to defend against, and what are the ways that you're going to be attacked, that's those three elements, those are the fundamental elements that matter to every single company that is in the business of making technology. And, and by business, I mean, that's whether they're in the business literally of commercializing it, like someone whose business is to build software and sell it uh, licenses to someone else, or if they just build solutions for their own internal use, there's no sort of um, marketplace monetization to it, but it makes the company you know, run faster and more efficiently. And so they all struggle with those same things, right? And you hit the nail on the head with thinking about, well, who do we need to worry about? And that's what that, really that second piece of those, those three items that I mentioned are is, who do we need to defend against? And so companies that are on a multinational scale, right? So if you're talking about your, you know, your Amazons and Netflixes of the world, you know, Everyone knows who they are because of their brand recognition, and so that attracts certain types of attackers for certain motivations. And a smaller, lesser-known company might not directly necessarily have that same problem, but that's where a lot of companies stumble. Smaller companies think, oh, I'm too small, I don't have customers yet, I don't have scale, maybe when I'm bigger this will matter, but what they fail to realize is that these smaller companies sell their services to the large companies, and the attacker will still want to attack the small company in order to get to the big company. So kind of everyone has to battle with many of the same challenges. Interesting. I mean, I, uh, we're going to talk about, you know, building security and, and like how, how to kind of approach it and be proactive about it in a few, a few minutes. I just remember a friend of mine, uh, David Yulvich, who was the, co uh, the founder of OpenDNS, which was acquired by Cisco a couple, uh, several years back at this point, um, would always talk to me about, making sure that security was baked in from the very beginning. It's not, it's not something that can be an afterthought, especially not anymore. And it has, you have to take it into account, make sure that you're taking the appropriate steps, which we'll discuss, um, you know, from the get go, like you were saying, it's super important, but yeah, so like, let's, yeah, go ahead. Tim. I was just going to say hundred percent agree with you. <laughs> Whoever that was, I didn't catch the name that you said, but oh, that's, oh, I advocate that till I'm blue in the face. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so let's 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 talk a little bit more before we dive into the weeds. Let's talk about how software gets hacked. Uh, for 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 people who are entrepreneurs or 
uh, executives or you know working at a company uh, startup or, or a traditional kind of Fortune 500 or whatever, um, ha- what should they be aware of when using software and 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 um, what kind of security vulnerabilities come just from having software? I mean, I know you mentioned that you know companies can build internal software, right? And it's not publicly facing, but those are but that but those are also avenues for uh, attackers to get into your your system, um, you know, even 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 still. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the simplest way to think about it is that the, the way you asked that question was, you know, how or why do the software get hacked? And the the simplest way to think about it is that <laughs> almost always by accident. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these vulnerabilities exist because there's some sort of flaw. And there's essentially two types of flaws. There's design flaws where the system works exactly how you meant it to, but it can be exploited anyway. <clears throat> and then there's implementation flaws, which are where you meant it to work a certain way, but the way you built it is actually does something differently. But either way, those those are, you know, accidents. And <laughs> I can tell you a, a great example of how... Um, how to think about these types of issues. So one of the techniques that ethical hackers will use uh, in order to find vulnerabilities, in order to advise our customers to how to fix them, is what's called abusing functionality. And, and by the way, the attackers do this too. Um, so abusing functionality is basically where you look at a uh, feature set within the system and you figure out how can you abuse that in such a way that arrives at whatever malicious outcome you might be looking for. And so there's a, there's a really famous uh, online game hacker who goes by the pseudonym of Manfred. And there was a really big profile about him recently that Vice did, and it, it talked about these sequence of attacks that he would do for many, many years, I mean literally like two decades. He, he was successful in doing this. And what he did was he abused the way that these games treat currency. And so for any members of your audience who aren't into online games, essentially the idea is in games there's a way you can accumulate currency. Uh, and that currency might be used for things like you get a weapons upgrade or a skills upgrade or access to a secret level. So it essentially enhances the gameplay. And the formula, and I'm oversimplifying things here, but the formula is essentially your current value, your current uh, account balance, minus the sum you're going to withdraw equals the new balance. So for example, you might have 500 coins, let's call it, and you need to take out 100 coins, so to say 500 minus 100 equals 400 coins. So you take out the 100 coins, you get the upgrade, and you're left with 400 coins. But what Manfred abused was the way that that system treated numbers, and he looked at it and he said, well, what if I could use negative integers where it's expecting positive? Yeah. So again, the formula was supposed to be 500 minus what was a positive number, minus 100 equals 400. So instead he made it say 500 minus negative 100. And as all of us learned in middle school, when you <laughs> subtract a negative, it's actually addition. Yeah. And so the system certainly wasn't intended to work that way. But by abusing the functionality, he was able to actually increase his account balance and get the upgrades. You know, 500 minus negative 100 is actually 600, not 400. And and he did it for many, many years. It was it was never really caught until he decided to retire from doing that. And that's a great example of where companies don't always understand how an attacker is going to break their system. And I mean, that's why you know companies like ours exist is to help you know because we do think about that all day every day. And mm-hmm. you know when you're building something, you don't necessarily always think that. But that's really right. the common way that the software gets um, exploited is, and it's not just that one technique, but techniques like that, right? Where a flaw exists, an attacker figures out how to exploit the flaw. Mm-hmm. It's super fascinating because it's literally a game of cat and mouse, right? Um, it, it, in many cases where you know the attacker uh is going to continuously test the system and and push the system in a way that it's not meant to be or wasn't wasn't originally intended designed that way and if there is a way for them to take advantage of that like inserting a negative number instead of a positive number um 
then they're going to do it <laughs> if they can find it. I mean, obviously, that's a programming mistake that was probably pretty easily fixed, I'd imagine, if, if they had caught it. Um, I hadn't seen that profile. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's super fascinating to see, like, because it's all, it's all about the way people think about things, right? Like, they're, you know, the attackers are thinking about it one way with, they have malicious intent, potentially. Um, meanwhile, uh, although, you know, meanwhile, um, company is ho it wants to create a product that people can enjoy and use. Um, and it just, it's just, a, it's just a back and forth game. But yeah, so let's, let's move on a little bit, uh, talk about the misconception about how to approach what is the biggest misconception in your opinion on how about on how companies or how people should approach security and it also seems like i just want to throw in that um i'm assume I'm, I'm guessing and maybe you can touch on this a little attackers who it's not just about computer or uh or you know leveraging technology and and, and programming there may also be some elements of social um you know uh uh, what was the word I'm looking for? It's escaping me. Social but, engineering. Um, social that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Social engineering. There's a social engineering element to it uh, or a deception uh, in many cases as well. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I was, I've been thinking about this question a lot. You know, I, I, you mentioned that I wrote this book called Hackable. And the reason that I wrote this book, it really motivated me to write it was because I I see the same problems manifest themselves over and over and over and over again for companies of all sizes and flavors and industries. And I wanted to help solve that. And so as I was thinking about what are the different problems and how should we solve all of them, I sort of, the structure of the book actually narrowed in on every chapter has one or more misconceptions and then I sort of replace them with the correct um, conception. And as I think about, you know, in the interest of trying to give you a, a brief answer, what's the most common misconception when I think that there's dozens of misconceptions? It, all of them really boil down to one or the other of two things. And these are going to sound contradictory, <laughs> but bear with me. <laughs> all right. People, the first one is that people either think that security is easier than it is or they think that security is harder than it actually is. <laughs> now, now, those sound directly <laughs> in opposition to each other. I, I, I recognize that. But that's the simplest way to sort of organize all of the many misconceptions. So the things where people think that it's easier than it is, uh, some of the misconceptions that manifest there are a lot of organizations think that you can just run some scan tools, you can buy some products, and all of a sudden you're secure. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, a lot of companies think that if they just c simply claim that they're secure without in any way trying to prove it or even actually doing it, that somehow that will satisfy what their customers are looking for. It just doesn't work that way. So security is a little harder than a lot of people think. Um, by contrast, it's also there's there's a method to the madness. And, and in a lot of ways, that's what that's why I wrote this book to say, here's the method. Right. And um so the method essentially has some difficulty to it, right? It requires effort, but it's not this complete, unattainable, unactionable, unachievable thing that a lot of people think security is, right? They think, well, it's a never-ending investment. It's a money pit. It's a tax on the business. It's, um, it doesn't actually deliver any outcome, and none of those things are true. Instead, what you got to do is you got to figure out the right type of investment based on your threat model, uh, and there is such a thing as you don't there, you don't have to have endless spending, right? There there is a a Goldilocks amount that's the right balance, you know, getting it just right, and that's one of the things that it, I advocate for is that if people can realize that it's both harder and easier than you realize, and follow this method, and you'll arrive at success. Uh, that's that's what I'm hoping for, and you know, that really that's really my mission is help people in that way. So here's a question for you. So let's go back to that example, that Manfred example, okay? Where a game company ships uh, ships their their code, uh, you know, puts it live on their server, so people can uh, take advantage of upgrades and things like that in the in-game currency by getting in-game currency. As a security researcher, how do you think about once it's shipped, then what? Like. Because clearly, I mean, that that functionality um, was being abused. Uh, 
it wasn't caught uh, based on what you were telling us. And and also at the same time, like these um, these things could have been easily fixed along the way. But how how does that happen? Like how how should a company do that? How can they think about that and make sure that they they're 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 testing? That is right there the classic problem that virtually any organization that builds software struggles with, which is at what point should I think about security? And um, there's you know, different schools of thought about it, but I'm going to tell you that all of the schools of thought are wrong except for this one, which is that. <laughs> It's never too early to think about security, but it's also never too late to think about security. So in that, the way you framed this, the idea that a company has shipped the solution, you know, they're the, the product is in the market um, and it has security vulnerabilities. Now what are we, is it just, well, tough luck, right? Uh, not exactly, because <laughs> the appropriate methodology is actually accounts for change, right? So the the simplest way to think about security is that it's actually, it's not a line, it's not a linear process, right? You don't start at point A and then get to point B and then by the time you get to point C, you're done. That's not the way security works. The way security works is it's a loop. So yeah, you're gonna do step A and then step B and then step C, but then you go, go and do step A again and step B and step C and then A and B and C and, and so on and so forth and it really never ends. And while that's daunting to think of it that way, in that, wait a minute, if I'm building software, that means I'm never not doing security. That, that can be unnerving when you first hear it. But again, there's a method to the madness and there's a way that you can handle that. But the reason that you wanna keep uh, assessing and you wanna keep looking for security issues is issues will continue to uh, present themselves. And I, I can give a perfect example from uh, there was a, a customer of ours who built a solution and they are, this particular company is excellent. I mean, excellent at translating the results of their security testing into improved engineering practices. I mean, they're in a league under themselves almost and how good they are in that once we find vulnerabilities and we explain to them, here's the here are the practices that led to that issue, and here's how you might want to change your development practices to avoid it in the future. They're really good at becoming better as a result of that, and not everybody is, and I mean, that's okay, but these this company's really good at it. And we wound up at a point where um, we do reassessments for them once a quarter, and by the time we were on our 12th round of reassessment, by that point, we didn't find any vulnerabilities at all. And we usually find you know, many. And mm -hmm. I was going to say how rare is that? that that's yeah. pretty rare to not, to not find any at all is, uh, it's very rare. Um, you know, usually we're talking about dozens of critical vulnerabilities up to, you know, many, many dozens that are in, of lower severity. And same, same was for the 13th, 14th and 15th rounds. There were no, no issues introduced, but by the time we came back for the 16th round, they had made a change that actually made it so that an attacker without any credentials from anywhere in the world could access their cloud storage, enumerate the file system, and access any file. And Ooh, this company, that sound good. no, it's not, it's not good. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, they they um they work in highly sensitive financial information, and so that was. I mean, that could have been catastrophic. That could have been business ending, right? If an attacker mm -hmm. had found that, or if a regulator or someone had found that and had fined them. But because they had gone through this um, religious process of continuing to evaluate for security threats, they were able to find that issue and remediate it. And that's why you want to approach it as a as a loop rather than a line, including even for organizations who maybe haven't thought about security yet, but you already have a product in the market with users and all that stuff, get looking at your security now so you can eradicate those issues and, and keep developing over time. Definitely, I think that's some really, really good advice. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure that, um, you know, when, like, you know, companies who, who work with, who you work with, um, clearly I would, I'd imagine, uh, understand the need for security, right? 
uh, or else they wouldn't really they wouldn't be working with you, I guess. Um, right. So, so that's positive, especially to see such big names that uh, you know big name companies that that you're working with. So it kind of gives me a little bit of relief <laughs> knowing <laughs> that you guys are checking that stuff. Um, now I'm curious though, like, can you talk a little bit about uh, switching gears here a little bit, uh, penetration testing and why what it is and what if companies should be doing it. Um, because uh, it's another form of, you know, testing your system, reviewing all the code, things like that, looking for security vulnerabilities. Uh, but t tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah. So I think the most important element to this particular question is is about what is penetration testing and and what is it often confused with? So yes, to like just to, pro to provide a little bit of context for you. Um, so security assessment is sort of the umbrella term that refers to all types and flavors of security testing. One type of security testing is called penetration testing, and this has sort of become the catch-all term. It's, it's in ways becoming to uh, be seen as almost a replacement for the term of uh, security assessment. It's become it, it, a lot of – it kind of means everything to everybody, which is a bad thing because it actually is a specific thing. So mm – -hmm. Um, to draw a metaphor to try to explain the ways that it's commonly misunderstood. So a penetration test is a way to think about it. It's kind of like a crash test for a car, right? So when the automotive manufacturers, when they want to understand how does the vehicle perform in a specific situation, for example, a frontal collision, they literally crash the test, crash the car against a wall. And then they see how did it perform in that situation, and then they use that to sort of inform uh, how to improve in that in that context. And that's what penetration testing is really like. It's um, looking at a specific situation, determining what would be uh, is a particular type of outcome possible. You know, like will the patient survive or the driver survive, kind of stuff. But is a outcome possible? Like could an attacker escalate privileges from you know? Could they escalate to admin privileges, something like that? And it's very thorough. Uh, it usually goes deep in one area, and it's usually using looking at known issues as opposed to finding previously unknown flaws. So that's what penetration testing is supposed to be. And this is where the problem really arises, is that even though that's a term that people often use, and that's actually what it's supposed to be, it's usually meant to mean something else and that's more like a scanner, vulnerability scan. So if you were to Google right now penetration testing, almost everything on your first page of your Google results would be scan-based approaches. And the difference is so where penetration testing is like we're going to take the car and we're going to ram it against the wall and see what happens, a vulnerability scan is more like you know when your check engine light comes on and you go to the mechanic and they plug that little tool in and the tool comes <laughs> yeah. back with a code and it says, here's what you have to do to clear the check engine light. That's, that's kind of what vulnerability scanning is like, right? It's, it's quick. It uh, has some preset criteria that it looks for. Uh, it's not always correct. But that's what's really crazy about this term is that someone might be saying, uh, I want to see how the car performs in a frontal collision. And then someone says, sure, buy this scan that will tell you how to turn off the check engine light. Those are two really different things with really different <laughs> outcomes, and that's what vulnerability scanning essentially does. It looks for known issues. It's pretty easy and basic, um, but it's certainly not. Even though people refer to that as a penetration test, it's really not. But what, mm -hmm. what makes it even more chaotic is that what people usually want when they ask for penetration test is something else altogether. What they're typically looking for is – how do I improve the security of the solution overall? Now, I don't necessarily need the one scenario. So in the car metaphor, it's um, one type of testing is let's crash the car into the wall. But really what you need is more like the entire discipline of safety engineering. And safety engineering does things like, well, of course, we want to run the, cr uh, the frontal collisions. We want to ride side, run side impact collisions. We want to understand how the head restraints and the seat belts and the airbags and how do all these pieces work together in order to protect the safety of the driver. 
And that's really what a vulnerability assessment does. And that's what people typically are asking for when they're using terms like penetration testing, right? They're saying, help me improve the security of my solution. Help me understand who my attackers are, what they're gonna go after, how they're gonna attack me, and what should I do, right? That's, they're really trying to understand that sort of, that nagging anxiety that we all have that's gnawing in the pit of our stomach, like the, I don't know what I don't know. And that's what vulnerability assessments are meant to do. And that's what's really difficult about this term is that those are three really different things. They require different inputs of time, money, and effort, and they have different outcomes, yet people often use them interchangeably and they shouldn't. Wow. That's, uh, you just schooled us on penetration testing, which is great. <laughs> I, think that was, I think that was a phenomenal answer and, and just really helped clear up what exactly it is, what it isn't, what people think it is. Yeah. Um, so that that was great. That was great. So so is it is? Would you say that it's it's a useful tool then, or is it's not like these vulnerability scanners? Let's go. Let's go with that first. Would you say that, that that's a useful tool for companies to use, or, or or should they when 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 they're when they're looking for such a thing, should they really be looking for actual penetration testing? I love that question, man. You know how to get to the heart of the matter uh, because <laughs> <laughs> the reason that question matters is that what a company needs to achieve, that's where you start before deciding what approach you'll take to get there. So for example, mm -hmm. um, if you have a very mature, very hardened system that's already been through a ton of security testing already and you're looking for how is it going to perform in a specific attack scenario you should do penetration testing that's that's exactly what penetration testing is designed for if however your goal is uh you have almost no budget and you just all you care about is the proverbial quote-unquote low-hanging fruit and you want to just find the uh, common issues you want to find them quickly um, you want a, a quick snapshot of what the attacker is going to see um, when they run a scanner too. That's when you should get vulnerability scanning. It definitely has a really important step uh, in the overall security testing program. And then if your goal is to have that more holistic view, how do you improve the solution overall? How do you pr uh, prove it to your customers? That's really where you need vulnerability assessments. And so mm -hmm. to summarize, like anything in <laughs> any aspect of our life, Start with what you want to achieve and work backwards from there. And that's a really big distinction from the way that most people think about security testing, which is, well, I guess I have to do security testing. I've heard a term, so I'm going to go get that term as opposed mm -hmm. to what do I want to achieve, and then I'll get the thing that gives me that outcome. Gotcha. I love it. I, that was just such a great answer. I don't think I've ever gotten such a clear-cut answer when, when talking about you know uh, security and penetration testing and, and helping you know understand like all right so this makes sense here's actually how i should be thinking about it um that was i really i really really like that i want to jump back in time uh let's say 2016 ish and you actually had mentioned to me you had wrote this uh this white paper i believe on on, on ransomware and 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 the problems surrounding it um and, and and if anything by 2020 ransomware has gotten even worse uh in fact the, the the you had mentioned that there was a hospital in Europe that um, uh, unfortunately a, a patient died because they weren't able to be admitted into the hospital because they were their systems were compromised down and they had to be rerouted to a different hospital and then literally as we were emailing back and forth recently uh, I, I saw this article yesterday from NBC News about a hospital just recently in the U.S. also affected by ransomware. Uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of helping organizations, especially hospitals, prevent um, ransomware from being installed on their their local machines. Because at that point, you, you know, it could be it could be phishing. It could be people, you know, being tricked into installing this software who work at the hospitals, things like that. Or it could be someone coming into the hospital and 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 you know, when it's not as busy and you know. In, in, plugging in a USB stick into a computer or whatever. Um, how, how, you know, how are, how should we be thinking about this? Is this something we should be extremely nervous about, scared about? Um, 
how do we how do we help prevent this type of stuff from happening? Yeah, so there's there's two angles to your question to address. Um, the first is the abstract angle, which is um, what should we realize about the attacker mindset about ransomware? When ransomware first started becoming um, a sort of known and successful attack technique, like you said, that was around 2016. We had published this two-year study looking at uh, healthcare systems. In particular, we were looking at how could an attacker uh, actually cause harm or fatality to patients via attacking information technology systems. And what's really important to note about ransomware is it shows us the creativity and the innovation that attackers have. Now, I know that sounds like maybe I'm putting them on a pedestal, and, and maybe to some extent that's how we should think about attackers. But the point is they took two known malicious techniques and they paired them, right? The idea of mm -hmm. uh, can I encrypt someone's information and the idea of ransom <laughs> like we've seen, Story. you know, from all like movies and just historical examples of people getting kidnapped and held for ransom. What if you combine the two? And that's the way the attackers are always thinking. I mean, ransomware is such a good example of a previously uh, unknown attack technique. And then one day an attacker invented it. And the reason that I'm starting at that abstract level is that the number one thing that I want organizations, anyone listening to this to go away with, is to have that sort of respect that borders on maybe even awe if it needs to be of the way that attackers think and operate. Because remember before, one of the misconceptions is people think that security is easier than it is. And mm -hmm. there's no tool that could have ever sort of automated a protection or looked for something like ransomware. And so that's the first thing we need to do. We need to walk away from this understanding the attackers are their creative, they're innovative, they're problem solvers, and it's, you said earlier, it's an arms race, that's exactly right. So that's the first thing, we need to realize, we need to be on our toes, not on our heels. We need to be leaning forward into how we're dealing with these issues. So that's the abstract answer to your question. The implementable, uh, you know, so that's just an idea, what do you go do with that <laughs> idea? <laughs> um, there are, essentially, as I would see it, a number of uh, implementable techniques that you can do in order to defend against uh, ransomware specifically. And at the in the interest of brevity, I won't go into all of them because there's tons of resources. If you just Googled right now how to defend against ransomware, you'd have tons of really good resources. Just make sure you're reading a blog and not um, going straight to a commercial product website who's going to try to sell you their whatever their anti-ransomware solution is, like read something from a researcher or an academic institution or someone who's analyzing it. But the ideas are essentially, there's offline backups. Uh, the problem is completely neutralized. Mm -hmm. The problem is, how do you implement business processes in order to make sure that offline backups are, are possible? And that's hard even for the largest companies in the world. And that's a business process question more than a technical question. Um, but a great example is um, prior to, we'll, we'll see how big this uh, ransomware attack that you mentioned that's underway right now winds up being. But the largest ransomware attack in the world happened, I think it was 2018. It's called NotPetya. And one of the, it, it impacted large companies all over the world. But one of the companies impacted was a company called Maersk, which is the largest uh, container shipping company in the world, like if you look around your office right now or your house or wherever you are, probably 60% of the stuff that you're physically looking at came on a Maersk ship. Mm -hmm. And Maersk was completely taken on, offline by this ransomware. And they, you know, you're talking about a multinational company distributed all over the planet that literally delivers the world's goods. I mean, talk about shutting down critical infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and seriously. They were, they, they were completely shut. There was nothing they could do. But what wound up happening was there was one data center that by chance what happened to have been offline during the attack. And it was offline for maintenance or something like that. Because it was offline, their whole, they were able to reboot their entire uh, operation from that one system wow. that was happened to by chance be offline. Talk about luck. <laughs> totally. Wow. I mean, I guess if you can yeah. call it lucky in the context of being yeah. very unlucky. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but it it, wow, it vividly, crazy. powerfully illustrates why an offline backup is helpful. And so the question then is, okay, how do we make sure that um, we can have those sort of offline backups? And that's that's a much broader uh, challenge that a lot of companies are going to struggle with. Absolutely. All right. In the interest of time, I do have one other question before we get to lightning round that I'd love to ask you, especially with the uh, upcoming 2020 U.S. election. And we're talking about security. Obviously, we've been talking. I mean, and if you turn on the news these days, you see a lot of talk about election, election integrity and security of, 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 of the votes and things like that. What are you concerned about, if anything, and what are and what can what should we be doing, uh, if if you are concerned to avert you know potential issues or disaster? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is a, it's a big deal, obviously. U.S. election, general election, is a huge deal. Yep. Yeah. No. It's it's absolutely a big deal, and um, everything I'm going to say. Let's make sure that we're couching this. This is not. I'm not taking a political stance either way because this this is a national security issue. This is not a mm-hmm. um, a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. This is an American Agreed. issue. Agreed. And I, I want to make sure that that doesn't get lost <laughs> in any way in the uh, in the shuffle here. Um, so, am I worried about interference in the election because of attacks on information systems? Uh, I am extremely worried, but probably not for the reason that uh, people might, uh, the conclusion you might jump to. So I think that the most human reaction to this topic that everybody has is, will my vote that I cast go for the opposition, right? Will I vote for, you know, party A and then an attacker switches it to party B? Right. I'm, I'm actually not concerned about that happening at scale because of um, one of the inefficiencies in the election system, the way that we actually tally votes, means that um, it's it's not certainly designed necessarily to be inefficient in this way, but it is inefficient, <laughs> and that inefficiency enables, um, it, it mitigates the likelihood that an attacker could execute something like that on a wide scale. So Security through obfuscation. Obfuscation, yeah. Like, uh, just the fact that it's so convoluted uh, and inefficient you know uh, it's different from security through obscurity that that's okay that's more like um if you go into the woods and you have a pile a duffel bag of cash you go into the woods to bury it because you don't want anyone to know where it is so you dig this hole you put this cash in there and then you leave you think it's pretty secure because you're the only person who knows where it is but what if someone was walking their dog and saw this random person digging this random hole in the middle of the woods and they got curious after you left and the only thing between them and your cache is some overturned dirt? <laughs> yeah. That's security through obscurity, which says once the secret's gone, the if the, if the entire security of the system falls apart, then you've fallen into the security through obscurity trap. It's a bad thing. But the, mm-hmm. the problem with the election system is more that the way that votes are tallied is done on local and regional base, bases as opposed okay. to like one central – like every American doesn't log into USA.gov and you know cast their vote. Right, right. Although someday you know, that is I Maybe. think where things are going. But um, yeah. So will your vote be changed? I don't have very much concern about that. It, it could happen on a local level. Um, the bigger concern, and this, there's a positive out of this really scary topic. The, the positive is that every single person, no matter what your role is at what company, you can do something about this one. Um, the big concern is about misinformation. And, I mean, you, you had Teresa on, so you guys certainly talked a lot about misinformation campaigns and you know the way that information is manipulated. But what happened in 2016 was that information systems were exploited – and what a lot of people don't realize is that both the DNC and the RNC, both systems were actually attacked successfully. And then the perpetrators of that attack intentionally withheld the RNC information and disclosed the DNC information in order to influence the American public's viewpoint on the candidates. And, um, you know, this isn't my opinion, like every intelligence service said that was exactly what happened and it was very successful. And so my counsel to everybody listening to this is no matter what side you're on, 
whether you benefited or didn't benefit from uh, that particular exchange, recognize that there are influences out there who want to trick you into doing things that they want. And fundamentally, we as Americans should make sure that we're informed. So that means uh, reading your, you know, of course, being informed, but being informed from the appropriate resources, right? So go to trusted news outlets. And, and I'm not saying you need to go to a right wing or left wing media, but go to one that's known as opposed to some random blog that sounds similar. And right. ultimately, vote. You know, one of the deficiencies that I see really across the United States government is there's these struggles right now about how to actually think about information security. And what we need to do is we need to vote candidates in who understand security as the national security crisis that it is. And let's put those people in a position to make good decisions on our behalf. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things you meant, I mean, I could, I could, I'm going to have to have you back, Ted, because we're running a little on time here. But I, I really think that, especially like you were talking about misinformation, I, there are a lot of really sketchy people out there who have started blogs, websites, and they say that they're part of XYZ, but they don't have any credentials. You've never heard of them before. But people fall for what they're kind of selling, even though it's, there's no uh, verifiable source to it, right? Uh, it's just them saying, I heard from my sources, blah, 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 blah. And people eat it up. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so absolutely. So Ted, I, uh, let me, uh, let's go to the lightning round. Uh, whenever you're ready, let me know and we'll get started. Let's do it. I'm ready. All right, here we go. What's one thing you would eat as a kid but would never eat as an adult? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Wow. I, I can literally I can give can't you think mine while you think if you want. Um, <laughs> so uh, several years ago, I went to this fair uh, out on Long Island when I lived in New York, and it was like an Italian fair, and they had candy apples. And I just remember having one of those as a kid, and or and uh, so I bought one, and I I took a bite of it, and I instantly regretted it. My teeth hurt for like a week. <laughs> after after eating after eating that so that's that's definitely something for me that i would never eat as an adult again <laughs> yeah i guess i that's funny mine would probably be in a similar category I, I don't remember what the product was called but it was it was something like honey buns and it was uh -huh. like an iced pastry of some sort that came in a you know cellophane like you buy it at 7-eleven and it had been on the, yeah. the shelves for years and i used to love <laughs> yeah. those things and uh yeah, I eat a lot cleaner than that now, so I would I would never touch one of those. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, Mac or PC? Mac. Nice. So, uh, so uh, when was the last time you used a PC? Just curious. Uh, my my <laughs> wife has a PC for her office, so occasionally I'll hop on to help her with it, and it's. Uh, this isn't a knock against PCs, but rather just anytime you have to switch operating systems, it's it's yeah, like, it's always a hassle. Yeah, it's like oh, I got to type with, I got to do something with my left hand now instead of my right, and so <laughs> not my exactly. favorite. Batman or Superman? Oh, Batman, Christian nice. Bale. I like Batman too. Yeah. Uh, current number of unanswered emails in your inbox. Um. Well, I have a pretty aggressive filter on, so. Of the ones okay. that get through my aggressive filter, I actually have only 13, but the filter has filtered out probably about 5,000 that I don't even have to see because the filter just whoop takes care of them. Just poof, gone. So nice. if you've emailed me Last... and it's caught in the filter, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing I can do about it at that point. <laughs> yeah. Last one. Last. Uh, this is I want uh, the last song you played on your computer or phone. Uh, I don't know what it was called, but it was uh, some some uh, something from my EDM channel that I'm listening to on on Spotify. Very cool. Well, Ted, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on uh, today. If uh, if anyone who's listening wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'd suggest three things. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Ted Harrington. Pretty straightforward. Uh, if the ideas today resonated with you. 
I'd say go sign up for the wait list for my book. It comes out in December. The website for that is hackablebook.com. Uh, and then if you just want to email me directly and ask me any questions or however I can help you, it's super simple. Ted, T-E-D, at ISE.io. Nice. Ted, thanks again for being on. I really uh, I really enjoyed it. Would love to have you come back one day and we can do video because I, as an announcement, I am working on setting up a video uh, recording so we can have our guests and also publish the videos on the site as well. But Ted, uh, again, thanks for being on. I hope you have a great rest of your day and uh, let's keep in touch. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.